This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania, the podcast that tells the story of civil liberties. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and director of communications at the ACLU of PA. In 1920, a small group of organizers and activists created the American Civil Liberties Union as a means to push back against a government that was undercutting people's most basic rights. They were rabble-rousers, they were agitators. Roger Baldwin, who is often credited as the ACLU's founder, spent time in jail as a draft resistor, and most of the organization's founders were not lawyers. Today, the ACLU is getting a lot of attention because we are putting more muscle into our advocacy work. That includes projects like ACLU Voter and Vote Smart Justice, which will educate voters about the civil liberties issues that will be in play in upcoming elections. But in between 1920 and today, the ACLU became the fiercest nonprofit public interest legal organization in the country. You know our most famous cases simply by the names of the people who were in the middle of them. The Scopes Monkey Trial, Korematsu, Gideon, Loving, Windsor, Obergefell. Here in Pennsylvania, the ACLU's recent legal work has produced major decisions. When a small-town public school district in York County attempted to interject so-called intelligent design, creationism warmed over into its biology curriculum, the ACLU represented parents who saw through that fraud, and the court's decision in that case in favor of the parents effectively killed the intelligent design movement. When then-Governor Tom Corbett tried to disenfranchise hundreds of thousands of Pennsylvanians with a voter ID scheme, It was the ACLU and our allies who pushed back on behalf of people who would lose the right to vote, and we got that law overturned. In one year before marriage equality reached the entire nation, it was an ACLU case that made that dream a reality for same-sex couples in Pennsylvania. For this episode, I sat down with Vic Volchek, the legal director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania, and Mary Catherine Roper, our deputy legal director. Vic and Mary Catherine talk about the hottest cases currently on our legal docket, the often forgotten people at the center of our lawsuits, and how the public mood can shift the courts for the better. Here we go. Vic and Mary Catherine, thanks for taking the time to talk today. I really appreciate it. Um, Vic, I want to start with you. You told me a few weeks ago that we currently have 92 cases on our legal docket. I'm wondering if you can explain what exactly that means. At what point is our involvement significant enough that you consider it a case to put on our docket? Yeah, thanks, Andy. Thanks for having us on. So I I went back and and looked at the docket this morning and sort of found a couple that really were close. So I took them off. So we've got about 85 cases on there. And in order for something to become what we consider a case, it's pretty simple. And that is that we actually contact in some fashion a government agency to advocate on behalf of a client. So sometimes that's a phone call. Often it's a letter saying, you know, here are the facts. Uh, If we have the facts right, 
you're doing something illegal, you've got about five seconds to fix it or we'll see you in court, and that often gets the job done. Uh, and that all counts as a case, as much as if we're forced to file a lawsuit. Um, and people should understand that it's, it's tough to sort of look and say how impactful 85 is. You know, everybody's case is especially important to that individual. Um, but some cases may be on behalf of just one person, and other cases may be huge class actions like uh, voter ID or marriage equality or the stop and frisk case we have against the Philadelphia police. And those cases literally impact thousands and thousands of people. So um, that's a little background on, on how we count our cases. And when you say 85, that's 85 that are there's something currently going on with them, correct? That's right. Yeah, I mean, and, and that number has been trending up uh, over the last couple of years. Uh, and I think that's just a reflection of the fact that we've added legal staff. And so we're able to, to take on more cases. So I want to focus in on some of the high profile issues we have been working on. And one of those is criminal justice reform. Um, you both know that uh, we have the campaign for smart justice that has very defined goals, cut the prison and jail population in half uh, and combat racial disparities in the criminal justice system. But that doesn't limit our work on criminal justice broadly. Uh, and Mary Catherine, you've been involved in addressing a problem um, that's existed in Pennsylvania for a long time, debtors' prisons. We thought we got rid of them about 200 years ago, but maybe we did not. Uh, in some counties, people are being jailed um, because they are too poor to afford the fines they owe. So as I understand it, that work started with a significant amount of time doing research. Can you tell us what was that process and what did you find? Sure. Um, and the first thing I want to say is even though we consider this part of our criminal justice reform docket, it's, uh, it's much broader than that because people go to jail for when they can't afford their traffic fines, which are not criminal citations, um, as well as just any kind of criminal fine, you know, down to disorderly conduct because you were, you know, drunk one night or something, right? <laughs> so this sweeps up just millions of people in Pennsylvania, and we had heard complaints um, occasionally from people over the years all over the Commonwealth that they were finding themselves put in jail because they were too poor to pay their fines and costs. Uh, and then, you know, they'd lose their job, <laughs> they'd lose their apartment, lose their car maybe, come back out, try to find work, be just struggling to get themselves back on their feet. And once again, the court is there with its hand out and saying, well, if you don't pay me, you're going back to jail. And we talked to people who had done this over and over again. They couldn't get out of it. Uh, and so first we try to understand the scope of the problem. And unfortunately, um, although we can get an idea that we know this affects thousands of people a year, we can't really pin that down because the data kept by the courts is not so great. So then we started really doing research with the help of a young lawyer funded by the Independence Foundation who just got out into these courts and started really looking at their procedures, looking at what the judges knew, what the judges didn't know. You know, one of the things we found is judges really don't know that they aren't trained to be collections agents, right? They aren't debt collectors. And then you say, go collect this money. And, and the problem is they don't know how to do that mm -hmm. with sort of very limited training and tools that they get. 
and you were you there were some really crazy anecdotes like uh someone owns a cell phone so therefore they must be able to pay their fines or they have tattoos so they must be able to pay their fines it was, just, it was amazing some of the things that you were finding um but what's the next step then in that process i understand you're, you're going county to county and working with some judges now yeah we're doing a pretty broad approach here the first you know as you say is to get out into these courts talk with these judges try to explain to them the impact of what they're doing um, on people's lives and show them the rules and show them the law and show them some tools that judges elsewhere, frankly, use to keep money coming in, but at a, at a basis that people can afford and so that people aren't becoming in default. They don't have to worry about going to jail. But we're also trying to get the uh, court rules amended to make this kind of thing much more explicit. So the judges, there are a lot of judges, a lot of courts. It's a big state. We aren't necessarily going to be able to meet with all of them. The rules should be telling them the things that we are are telling them. We have changed practices in every court we have touched. The, the way to spread that is really to change the rules. Speaking of prisons, um, we have uh, at least four prison-related um, cases right now, and your lead counsel on like, several of them. But it seems like for every prison case we file, we probably get another 50 complaints about other prisons. Uh, and I know you started your public interest career on this issue. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges of bringing lawsuits against prisons? Yeah. So, I, yeah, as a young lawyer, I spent my first five years doing uh, nothing but prisoners' rights cases for the Maryland Legal Aid Bureau. That seems like a lifetime ago, and probably because it was <laughs> a lifetime ago. Um, prisoner cases are extremely difficult um, because, first of all, you've you've got clients who have been convicted of something and in the eyes of the public many people in the public in the eyes of judges that's they've kind of got two strikes against them so you rarely have what would be called a sympathetic client and the law is just is horrendous it, it it's it's gotten worse and worse over the years and so trying to win those cases is very hard and and there also aren't nearly enough resources in the community to be able to help all the people who want help uh, and who need help. So, I mean, we, we get we get thousands of prisoner letters asking for help every year. Some are, I shouldn't be in jail because I'm, I'm wrongly convicted and others are, you know, there's some problem with, with how the prisoner jail is, is treating me. Uh, and uh, there's just no way that either the ACLU or the handful of other organizations that exist dedicated to doing prisoners or uh, prisoner rights cases can possibly respond to all of those. And, and we know that many of those are good cases. They have good claims, but just the process of trying to go through all of those, investigate them closely, make it nearly impossible for us to take on the cases. So what we're kind of left to do is to look for, for situations where there's a pattern or where it impacts a large number of people or it's it's a particularly egregious situation. Um, uh, so you know, that's that's kind of how we refine our uh, our case selection and just briefly the so the four cases that you mentioned that we're doing right now one is um, Williams versus Allegheny County it's it's on behalf of a of a transgender woman who um, 
uh, is being treated by the jail as a man. They refuse to uh, house her with other women. You know, if you looked at her, there's absolutely no doubt in your mind um, that she's a woman. If she walked into a men's room, people would tell her she's in the wrong bathroom. Not only did they put her in a cell with a man, but they put her in a cell who was charged with a, with a sex offense, and, and she was brutally abused for four days before they moved her out. So we, we filed a lawsuit trying to get the Allegheny County Jail's treatment of trans uh, prisoners changed. The second case we have is, is called Reed versus Wetzel. Um, this deals with a, a situation that has, I think, come to the fore, uh, not only in this country, but around the world over the last few years. And that's the, or the use of solitary confinement for prolonged periods of time. And in Pennsylvania, if you are sentenced to, to death, then um, you are kept in solitary confinement until you either die of natural causes, you're put to death, which you know, hasn't happened since 1999 in this state, um, or your sentence is vacated. Uh, and so there are people who've literally been in solitary confinement for over 30 years. In January, we filed a, a class action lawsuit uh, to, to change that and hopefully to um, get some measure of of freedom for these individuals, at least freedom inside the prison. They're they're not going to hurt anybody. They're not uh, going to get out anytime soon, but they should not be kept in sort of prolonged, indefinite, solitary confinement. Um, the third case is called Arison versus Fayette County. We filed that just a, a couple of months ago, and it's about the, the, the oldest jail in Pennsylvania. I believe it was built in 1889. Uh, the county has long recognized that they need a new jail. In fact, the county had approved building a new facility, uh, and then new commissioners got elected, and they kind of uh, scratched that proposal, uh, and it's been on the slow track ever since. So we filed a lawsuit in, in, in that prison, which houses about 225 people. Um, they literally have, have uh, toilets that don't flush. Sometimes they're told they can't flush the toilets for several, for several days. There's no running water there's there's little or no ventilation on summer days it can be over 100 degrees you know the, that amounts to torture and cruel and unusual punishment so we've sued Fayette County to uh, to get some relief for those individuals and then the the last case is is the oldest of this bunch it's called JH versus Dallas um, it is on behalf of individuals who are charged with crimes and found to be mentally incompetent. And what that means is that they are so profoundly ill that they simply do not understand the nature of the charges against them or or are able and aren't able to assist their defense counsel in, in, in challenging those charges. And under the Constitution, those people cannot be criminally prosecuted. So they either have to be released or they could be put into a mental hospital for treatment to see if they can be made competent. Federal courts have said that it, it can't be more than uh, seven days that somebody gets sent to a mental hospital. In Pennsylvania, the times, at least in the eastern side of the state, have exceeded 14 months wait. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a pretty horrific situation. Uh, and on JH, you said that's been the longest of the four that you just mentioned. Um, what's the status there? Is that is there some resolution in sight? Well, um, you know, they, we call these institutional reform cases. So, you know, unlike somebody doesn't get a permit to to hold a, a, a protest. 
process. You know, that's kind of a one and done situation. You can run into court. Here we're talking about changing how uh, an agency of government operates. So these, these kind of cases are much more complex. They are much more uh, resource intensive. They're much more time consuming. Uh, and they tend to take years, if, if not decades. I mean, there are cases trying to reform prison systems and foster care systems that have been on the books for for 30 years and, and are still ongoing. Um, we, we, as I mentioned, we filed this case in October of 2015. We moved for emergency relief. Uh, and, and when I say these people are sick, I mean, think floridly psychotic. I mean, these are the, the folks that you see maybe talking to themselves or talking to imaginary people. I mean, truly, just you know, can't help themselves. Many of them are estranged from their families just because you know, the nature of their mental illness is, is just so, so difficult. Um, and we filed for emergency relief. We, we have signed now two settlement agreements trying to get the wait times down. We've, we've reduced the or Department of Human Services under pressure from us has reduced wait times in the eastern part of the state from about 14 months down to sort of eight months now. Uh, but there's still close to 200 people waiting. Uh, you know, a six, seven, eight month wait is just way too long. It's, it's not only unconstitutional, but it's just, it's really cruel to keep these super sick people who, uh, can't be punished under the constitution and they're still sitting in, in prisons and jails, usually where they get no mental health care. Um, so we are right now, literally this week, negotiating with the Department of Human Services on what we hope is going to be a third settlement agreement that will that will push Department of Human Services to make even more changes so that hopefully in the next year we can get those wait times down to, you know, just a, a matter of weeks. Vic, you mentioned that one of the cases um, related to prison issues is on behalf of a transgender client of ours. And I want to talk about transgender equality a little more broadly as well. Um, equality for lesbian, gay, and bisexual people is far from complete. But we've seen in the political sphere that transgender people have become uh, a scapegoat for hostile elected officials uh, as they've recognized the public was increasingly accepting of LGB people. Um, so they thought they could use trans people as a wedge. Um, after some high profile state level fights, particularly HB2 in North Carolina, the ACLU made a decision to prioritize trans equality. And there is a legal component to that. Uh, Mary Catherine, we had a big win in, that you led in May in defense of a school that was actually doing the right thing uh, for transgender students. Tell us about that case and where it now stands. Yeah, this is a really scary case. It is part of um, a campaign by the extreme right to use courts um, to block the rights of LGBT people. Um, when the Boyertown Area School District started allowing transgender students to use facilities that match their gender identity, some conservative parents sued the school district, saying that it violated the rights of their cisgender students, their cisgender kids, to have to use a bathroom or a locker room in which a transgender student was allowed to just be there. Like they weren't, they weren't suggesting that the transgender students were doing anything inappropriate. Just their presence, they said, violated 
uh, their kids' rights. We intervened in the case, which is a legal procedure that means that we actually joined the litigation as a party. We represent um, Pennsylvania Youth Congress, which works statewide um, uh, to help LGBT students advocate for themselves and to support uh, gay-straight alliances in public schools, in, in all schools, really. Um, and so we joined the litigation on the side of the school district uh, to argue against the case being brought by the conservative parents. They asked uh, a federal judge to um, halt the school districts to enjoin the school district's um, practice of allowing transgender students to use appropriate facilities. Um, that judge refused their request for an injunction. They took an immediate appeal to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, that court as well um, refused their request for an injunction and, and did it in a really powerful way. I, first of all, the court was so moved by the importance of the issue that they literally ruled on the spot when we went to court for oral argument on the case. And that doesn't happen, right? I mean, usually at the end of an oral argument, the appeals court will say, we'll take it under consideration and then you wait some weeks or months for a written opinion. They said, we think this is too important to wait. We're going to give you an answer right now. And they came out and said, we agree with the district court uh, that it was appropriate to, to refuse uh, this um, injunction uh, uh, to make the school district stop uh, um, working with transgender students. Um, and then more importantly, the, the circuit court put out a, an opinion that first and foremost affirmed in a really strong fashion um, the importance of respecting transgender students' identity and their rights. One of the things that really offended the court was the fact that the plaintiffs would not use the term transgender. They simply argue that transgender doesn't exist. It is a delusion. It is a mental illness. Um, it, I, it, I mean, they are just sort of the denial of, of existence and selfhood that, that they are directing at transgender people is is really horrible and and that really offended the court I think um, but more importantly the court just very thoroughly uh, rejected their claims that they had a right to exclude transgender kids from facilities that match their gender identity um, they have asked the court to reconsider um, that is one step before going to the Supreme Court. We, we expect that they will also ask the Supreme Court to take the case, and we are staying in it every step of the way to protect transgender students. So this seems like a good spot to talk about another recent development uh, on, here in Pennsylvania on LGBTQ discrimination. Earlier this month, the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission announced that it will now accept LG, complaints of LGBTQ discrimination in employment, housing, and public accommodations as a form of sex discrimination. Now, this is a legal concept that the ACLU and our allies have been working on for several years with some success in the federal courts. Um, Mary Catherine, what should people know about this change in the Commonwealth's non-discrimination law? Uh, well, this is really exciting because, as you said, in the federal courts, there's been a lot of progress. 
um, in the context of employment discrimination cases. There's no federal law that prohibits discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or, or gender identity in employment, but some uh, people have successfully argued that when their employers discriminated against them, it was because they weren't living up to their employers' stereotypes and expectations about their gender whether it's because it's a gender non-conforming woman, whether it's a trans person, whatever. Um, and that has really expanded federal protections um, in employment for people who are LGBTQ and, um, or anything else, right? And the exciting thing about Pennsylvania making this rule explicit is that unlike the federal government, Pennsylvania also prohibits sex discrimination in, the, in public accommodations. That means where you go to get your pizza, where you go for, you know, to see a movie, when you go to any kind of office for any kind of service. You go to an accountant, you go to a lawyer, you go to, you know, like anyone, any place where the public goes to get any kind of service. Um, you can now say, if they turn me away, because I'm LGBT, they are turning me away because of their gender stereotypes, and that is now illegal under Pennsylvania law. That's pretty exciting, because that is not a protection that we have at the federal level. It's wild, because I think people uh, have always just, a lot. you hear a lot of anecdotes of people thinking that that was already uh, in law, that you can't discriminate against LGBT people, and they're sort of shocked that it isn't. Um, so it almost seems like the law is catching up with the times. Um, but f filing a complaint of discrimination is a, there's a few more steps, there are a few more steps to it than just like a lawsuit where you write up a brief and you file it in the low level court. Um, can you walk folks through what that process is like? Yeah, it's, it is a lot more complicated um, than just filing a discrimination claim. First of all, any of these claims have to start with the administrative agency, which means um, people, uh, I think, know because you see the signs up in your place of employment that if you have an employment complaint, you can file that complaint with the EEOC or you can file the complaint with the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission. Um, same thing now uh, in terms of filing in a complaint for public accommodations discrimination. The most important thing to know first off the bat is you have to file that complaint within six months. If you wait 181 days, you're out of luck. You have to file that complaint within six months. You file the complaint with the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission, and that's not a difficult process. A lot of people do it without lawyers. They have forms. They have staff people who can help you. But the ACLU is looking to help some people, particularly with LGBT public accommodations discrimination complaints. So we, we hope people will contact us soon, right, because it's only six months um, with those kinds of complaints. And then you can't be in a hurry. The Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission gets a lot of complaints. It can take them several months just to contact the other side. They go through a lot of steps in terms of investigation and a, a probable cause hearing, and, and then they could try to mediate the dispute. After a year, they have to allow you to just take your complaint and go to court, a court of common pleas, a state trial court, if you want to, 
Um, and quite often by then they haven't really gotten terribly far along in their process just because they have so many cases and, and aren't, aren't really fully staffed. But even if that process isn't going to sort of get you a determination, you have to do all that first. You have to file your complaint with six month, within six months. You have to spend a year allowing the Human Relations Commission to work on your complaint. Um, and then you have the option of either filing starting from scratch in a, in a state court with a discrimination complaint, best to have a lawyer there, um, or, or trying to continue with the Human Relations Commission. So the last issue I want to touch on is immigration. Uh, and these really feel like dark times for immigrants and people who care about our immigrant neighbors. And we've been bringing immigration-related complaints uh, for a long time here at the ACLU of Pennsylvania. When Hazleton and Lou Barletta tried to do their thing, creating an immigration enforcement scheme, we stood in their way. Uh, when the school district of Lancaster was sending older refugee kids to an alternative school, we pushed back on behalf of the kids. Uh, we've had multiple cases, one that's still ongoing uh, of U.S. citizens being held in county jails on ICE detainers. Vic, in light of the atmosphere that we're in right now, what do you think are the most important things that immigrants and people who work with immigrants should know about the state of the law and how to protect themselves? Yeah, I, I think when you say these are dark, dark days for, for immigrants, uh, you know, that that's a may even be an understatement. It, it, it's it's pretty horrible. So, I mean, one of the first things the Trump administration did was to kind of rescind any discretion that the government has to allow people to stay. So, I mean, there's an awful lot of people who may have um, either come here without appropriate status or who maybe came on a visa and overstayed, um, have developed lives. And while the Obama administration was, was no great shakes on this issue, um, especially in the, in the last few years of the administration, they exercised discretion in a lot of those cases and said, okay, we know that maybe there's some problem with how you came or how you stayed, uh, but given that you're, you're largely leading a law-abiding life, you've created a life, you've got a family, you've got a job, you're paying taxes, etc. We're going to exercise our discretion and allow you to stay. But that has always been at sort of the whim of the government. And what the Trump administration has largely done is from, from almost day one is said, forget the discretion. If there is any basis to have somebody removed from this country, then we're going to do it. And, and, and we have literally seen ICE and Customs and Border Patrol agents acting on that premise from day one. Uh, and unfortunately for an awful lot of these folks who are here um, without lawful status, uh, even if they've been given a chance by the prior administration and said, it's okay, you guys can stay here for now, there's not a whole lot that can be done for, for an awful lot of these people. And, and sort of one of the most traumatizing sort of visions I have from the first 18 months, 19 months of the Trump administration, it feels a lot longer than that, is, is sitting in a, you know, in a nice austere home or apartment with a, a, a young uh, Latino woman sobbing, telling me about how her husband has been taken into detention and, and, and telling me that he's never had a criminal conviction, never even had a traffic ticket, and then seeing, you know, 
big beautiful brown eyes peering around a wall and uh and 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 out come these little children whose whose father is is in detention and and it, it's it's just it's it's truly horrifying but what we're seeing more and more now is that that's not enough for this administration that's that's not cruel enough and so they've been pushing the envelope doing crazy things like separating parents from children at the border uh, trying to change the rules of asylum, which have been in place since the 1950s, um, d trying to deny people who, who even get an initial determination that they may be able to uh, stay in this country on asylum, keeping them in jail for, for years while the government appeals that determination. Um, the ACLU believes a lot of those practices are unlawful. Uh, if you read the news, you've seen the ACLU leading the charge uh, in getting court orders blocking the government from engaging in those practices, most notably on the on the separation of children from parents, which many but not all have have now been reunited. That's a case we continue to work on. It's hard to give people a lot of hope. Uh, one of the things we are seeing is that the you know, many many courts, not all, but many courts are holding firm are holding the administration's feet to the fire and are issuing decisions saying, wait a minute, this is still a country where the rule of law prevails. You are violating the law. Stop doing what you're doing. Cease and desist immediately. Uh, uh, and so you know, there, there is somewhat of a firewall. It's leaking. Uh, but I, but you know, I think there, there is, there maybe is that small glimmer of hope. But these definitely are dark times for immigrants in this country. Well, your last comment there about the firewall actually leads to a question I wanted to ask both of you about the role of the courts, uh, especially now. There's a lot of talk about the Trump administration reshaping the courts with their appointments uh, and the Senate, you know, greasing the skids to make sure those appointments get through. Obviously, most high profile example now being the nomination of Judge Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court. But I've been reading some of the interviews that our national legal director, David Cole, has been doing. And he's been talking about the idea that the courts can be swayed by what's going on in public. You know, he uses the, the movement for marriage equality, uh, as well as the NRA's work around gun rights and some of the pushback that happened to the Bush administration post 9-11 as his examples. And, you know, he talks about how if people get engaged, that can impact the courts. I'd love to just pick your brain a little bit about that. Do you, do you see it the same way? And, um, you know, what, what kind of action do you encourage folks to engage in? And he even says that up to, not, it's not just a matter of being in the streets, but up to and including the way people vote. Oh, it's, it, it's absolutely essential, right? Judges are people too. <laughs> they, they read the newspaper. They watch the news. Um, they even occasionally talk to people who are not judges and lawyers. Uh, we think that's probably for the better. And, and they care what people think because, you know, part of our concept of, of democracy, and I think while judges, you know, know they are there to apply the law, they also, you know, really believe in this being a democracy. Um, and uh, contact with all the with other people and their views and was happening to people who are not like them <laughs> uh, is really essential for them to understand the things they're ruling on. I can't imagine if we had not had 
the crowds at the airports, the crowds in the streets, that we would have seen the same level of judicial resistance to the Muslim ban. I think, uh, you know, all of the the change in public sentiment and public approach uh, to uh, lesbian and gay couples, of course, led to the judicial uh, uh, affirmation of, of marriage rights for same-sex couples. So judges only know, you know, what they know, right? And and so some some of that comes to them through the legal briefs and so on. But they also come to understand what people around them are, are saying. It's just really important, um, not just for judges, for everybody to be talking about these issues and, and increasing them so that they, they become a part of a public consensus that there are things we expect of our country. We expect dignity and fairness uh, and justice for everyone. Everyone. Vic, do you want to yeah. add to that? Yeah, it's what I... I, I completely agree with Mary Catherine, but I, I want to go in a different direction, and that is that while uh, I do think that, that sort of the citizenry can have uh, some impact on judges, now judges are not all made the same. And there's, a, there's a huge difference in worldview between, say, uh, you know, a Brett Kavanaugh or, or Neil Gorsuch and a Sonia Sotomayor or, or Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, and it, and it, you know, it, it largely relates to um, sort of the conception of who belongs and who should be empowered and who needs to be protected uh, in this country. And you know, the certainly the ACLU's view is closer to those justices who believe that you know everybody deserves the same fair shake and that government uh, needs to be restrained at appropriate times uh, in our history, which is practically always, uh, but sometimes more so than others. And probably the most famous judge in this country who was never a Supreme Court justice is a man named Learned Hand who was around in the 1920s and 30s. And he famously said, liberty lies in the hearts of men and women when it dies there. No constitution, no law, no court can save it. No constitution, no law, no court can even do much to help it. So ultimately, it is up to the people. And it and what I'm really driving at is that elections do matter, especially when it comes to the federal courts. And and when you get enough of those judges that have a worldview that is maybe more elitist, um, that uh, things are going to get worse in this country. Uh, and so ultimately, uh, people need to think about that and, and realize that the judiciary is a vital and important third branch of government. And uh, if uh, there are too many more justices like the most recent ones put on the court, uh, uh, there is not going to be an effective check and on the executive branch of government. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're all going to lose out if that happens. Well, Vic, Mary, Catherine, thanks for taking the time. Appreciate the conversation and uh, thanks for your incredible work. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. Thank you to Vic and Mary Catherine for being a part of this episode. You can learn more about all of the cases that the ACLU of Pennsylvania is currently handling 
by visiting aclupa.org cases. Did you like what you heard? Then become a member. Visit aclupa.org join. Your donation makes you a member of both the ACLU of Pennsylvania and the National ACLU. And your donation keeps us doing what we do. That's the end of episode 10. The editor of Speaking Freely is Amy Giacomucci. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover. Until next time, be free. Thank you.